the following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 16th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Field of Dreams game between the White Sox and Yankees and whether cornfield baseball is the future of the sport. Jessica Luther of the Burn It All Down podcast will also be here to discuss Deshaun Watson and Trevor Bauer and what happens when leagues investigate players accused of sexual misconduct. And finally, we'll review the new Netflix documentary, Malice at the Palace, about the 2004 brawl involving the Pistons, the Pacers, and a bunch of fans. Unruly fans. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the new podcast, One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. I think Wild and Outside is appropriate to mention this week because the cover of the book shows players for the Sioux City Explorers walking through corn in the outfield. Mm. I never can really tell whether you're feeling enthused or ashamed about Wild and Outside. I need like a just a, a weekly update on your per, your personal views. I'm enthused views. this week. I mean, I'm <laughs> sort of enthused and a little bit embarrassed that the cover of the book is Field of Dreams, which I'm about to trash in this upcoming segment. Spoiler alert. With us from the West Coast, from Palo Alto. Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6, and world-renowned sports trivia expert and champion, undefeated, untied, never scored upon, maybe scored upon, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. One for one so far. A lot, a lot of people saw that coming, me beating Mina Kimes. But, you know, I just have to use people's expectations as my fuel. You got to give people some background here, Joel. What is this uh, trivia bracket tournament you are involved in? Yes, I was invited to participate in The Right Time with Bomani Jones's little trivia segment that's going on for a couple weeks. And it's for a good cause. We're raising money for, you know, respective charities or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's, I think, eight people that were invited. I was one of them. Bomani is one. Mina Kimes is another. And I was paired up against Mina Kimes in the first round. And, of course... Everybody thought that I was going to lose and started saying so on Twitter, you know, in the week in, in advance. And so basically I stored all those tweets and used them as motivation and defeated her uh, in the first round. And, you know, I'm just going to keep it going because nobody thinks I'm going to beat Howard Bryan in the second round. And, Is that um, a bulletin board behind you with all those with all yeah. those tweets? That's Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Those I are mean, push pins I mean, back there, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I even I mean, noticed think- that Mina Kimes thinks that Howard Bryan is going to beat you. I just thought that, you know, she should have known better after I defeated her like that. But I guess that's just, you know, if you go to, you know, Yale or something, you just don't think a lot of us people that went to the good old private schools out in the rest in, in the heart of the country, you know. When is this next matchup for you, Joel? I think it will air on Friday. Literally, as we were talking about this, I just got a 
a text from Bomani's producer <laughs> saying that I will match up against Howard on Thursday. And so, yeah, I, I, there's no way to study, right? I don't know how to prepare for this. Just watch but. a lot of hockey, I would say, in the, in the next <laughs> few days. I think I, I would be, we would be remiss here, Josh, if I did not reveal that you are the champion of the premier division of the uh, Sports Trivia League that we, we participate in in this current season. Apocalypse Sports Trivia. Yeah, Joel, if you... Uh, I don't know how that compares to the Bomani Jones charity trivia, but you know we've we've got a lot of trivia champions on this podcast. I won Division Two last season. I didn't even know that there were trivia leagues. So <laughs> this is how far removed I am from the trivia. What is world. what is but, your charity? Uh, it's for the Southern Center for Human Rights, um, based in Atlanta. Helps people, you know, navigate the you know very punitive legal system down there in the South. So we're all rooting for you, Joel. Prove the doubters wrong. No doubters on this podcast. No. I'm putting you the Houston, Gulf Coast, and the Southern Center for Human Rights on my back. Uh, I hope y'all will be rooting for me. Or maybe don't. Actually, don't root for me. I don't, I don't need it. It won't help me. <laughs> I've been watching baseball for more than half a century now, and I can say with confidence that I've never seen anything as phony as what took place in Iowa last week. A game played on a stage-set field built adjacent to another stage set field, built for a feature film based on a novel. And then, as my friend, documentarian John Hawk, told baseball writer Joe Poznanski, quote, everyone getting all weepy and nostalgic about it as if it had all been true. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. But John also said that it was pretty awesome watching a big league game in a cornfield, and that actually was true. The White Sox and the Yankees walked through the stalks like the ghost players in the movie that this was all wrapped around, and then knocked eight dongs into the corn. The last one was the best. On a night manufactured to celebrate a movie about white rural schmaltz that ignored the sport's original sin, black players were banned from the field of dreams, just as they were from the American and National Leagues. The hero was a black dude who had never seen the movie and refused to indulge in the sentimental mythology about it or the sport that he plays. Joel, first, are you like shortstop Tim Anderson of the White Sox, or have you seen Field of Dreams? And second, what did you make of baseball's orgy of nostalgia? Yeah, my cousin Tim Anderson. Um, you know, I'm sure that I watched at least a few minutes of the Field of Dreams when it came out in 89. Now I was 11, and, you know, that's an age at which you'll pretty much watch any movie, right? Um, and I knew enough about its pop culture impact that it wasn't totally unfamiliar to me, but I don't know much about it other than if you build it, they will come. And then it had vaguely something to do with the, that old White Sox team that was accused of throwing the World Series. So, you know, it, which is sort of weird because I'm of an age when baseball was once one of my favorite sports. I played it. I followed it really closely, even collected baseball cards. And I'm, I'm almost certain that I saw more Astros games than any other professional team in my youth. But yeah, I must admit, sort of like Tim Anderson, the movie doesn't resonate with me. 
But instead of saying there's something wrong with the movie or even that particular game, I'm just going to say that it's not for me, right? I'll, I'll tune in every now and again for postseason baseball, which I really do enjoy. But my love for the sport has waned over the years. And, and, and some of that is because for some of the same reasons that Tim Anderson doesn't feel connected to that part of history or more broadly, why there aren't as many Tim Andersons in the game as there were when I was growing up. So like when I was, when I watched baseball, the Astros had players like Kevin Bass and Billy Hatcher, um, you know, black players that I, I really identified with and rooted for Enos Cabell, another, another great black Astro uh, from the eighties. And J.R. Richard just died. J.R. Richard. Week. Right. Although he was a little bit before because I think he had a stroke when I was like mm-hmm. very young, but but yeah, so when Tim Anderson comes to mind now, I think of a dude who is seen as much of a, an anomaly and a threat to the tradition of the game. And that's just a tradition I don't have a lot of interest in, right? So, you know, I, I guess to sort of answer your question, I, I didn't think much of the game last week because it's pretty much everything that drove me from the sport in the first place and is a reminder of why I've been sort of culturally removed from the sport as a fan since I was a little boy. But I can appreciate how visually beautiful and interesting it looked and I, you know, I, I did see people talking about the, the walk-off homer on, on social media, and that made me tune in a little bit. And, you know, I saw the buildup, but I didn't, I, to be honest, I did not stick with it all the way through. But I'm assuming Josh was probably a little bit more interested than I was. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, Joel. I mean, we had a lot of the same kind of, like, upbringing, you know. In ter- like, I went to more Astros games than in any other professional sport, probably. Mm-hmm growing up because I was a huge baseball fan and we have family in Houston. And so we would go to those games. And I remember all those players, obviously. And, you know, for me, the two things that kind of introduced me to sports or indoctrinated me into sports as a kid were sort of LSU and the Saints, like taught me how to be like a really hardcore, obsessive, live or die, like cry if your team doesn't win kind of fan. And baseball, and I was a Mets fan, Mets fan, but I was more of a fan of just the game and the lore and the history and like the statistics and the baseball encyclopedia. And I had the baseball baseball cards too. They're still in my parents' house. Um, but I had a very uncomplicated relationship with all that stuff. And I loved Field of Dreams and was like really into that, like, you know, n- nostalgia stuff. And I have not gone back and watched the movie, but I remember it being a great movie. And I don't know if I would, if, if it would still have that kind of effect on me that it had on me when I was a kid. But, you know, Barry Pacheski at Defector wrote a, a piece about this and it was commented on elsewhere as well, is that like, this is a game designed to appeal to what is already baseball's core demographic of like older white people. And doesn't really it's not really any kind of like olive branch or cornstalk equivalent of an olive branch to any other groups and yet stefan i think we can't deny the extraordinary kind of interest that there was in this game highest rated Mm -hmm. um, regular season game in forever um the and the the highlights look very cool and i think there might be both both for the people that put this together and maybe the people writing about it, I feel like two things are being conflated. Number one, the like nostalgia for Field of Dreams. But number two, it just looks fucking cool to hit a home run into corn, like totally unrelated <laughs> to anything to do with the movie. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a production, it is undeniable that 
Major League Baseball did a great job. They spent $5 million to build this stadium on that farm in Dyersville, Iowa, over the last two years. This was supposed to happen last summer, but obviously the pandemic postponed it. The production values were great. The Fox guys were funny. They did a little skit. Uh, Frank Thomas was terrific playing the James Earl Jones role. Um, they milked this. Like, <laughs> a sentence that I, that I didn't think I would ever hear, but continue. <laughs> Um, I mean, they milked it. There was a two-hour pregame for this to sort of justify doing this. You know, and and if, like many, many people, like you, Josh, like me, I was in my 20s when this movie came out, and I liked it too. And I think part of that was that I grew up with baseball. I was an obsessive fan. I was a cry-if-the-Yankees-lose fan. And I didn't, though, process what was wrong with this film. Um, and what was wrong with this film is glaring, and that is that there are no black players in the Field of Dreams, right? <laughs> the Negro Leagues were erased from the history of baseball just as they had been erased in every other venue as the sport looked back on itself and celebrated itself. The director, Phil Alden Robinson of Field of Dreams, said on a podcast uh, recently in the run-up to this game that he'll always regret his failure to include players from the Negro Leagues among the ghost players, which... You know, looking back now makes me feel like that's enough to relegate this film to the ashbin of history, and it's not something we should continue to celebrate. I mean, I say remake Field of Dreams, call it, I don't know, Field of Fuck Y'all, and have Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston and Judy Johnson and Bullet Joe Rogan beat the crap out of Shoeless Joe and racist Rogers Hornsby and all of them every single day over and over for all of eternity. <laughs> Roger Hornsby was racist. I see. I didn't know that. I I, I think of the you know the also the, the premier racist so. being Ty, Ty, Ty Cobb. But okay, yeah, the yeah Ty I Cobb didn't. as racist is disputed by historians now. Rogers Hornsby is a lock. He was racist. He lived up to it. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, see, you know, and I totally I appreciate you, Stefan, for having that critique of it. Um, I'm glad that there are people that are thinking about it in that way because I. I can understand why people are agitated by the artifice of the whole thing and, you know, why people are, are mad at, you know, how the game left people out. But, but, you know, I don't really have a problem with them romanticizing that movie or the game's glorious past because I think we're all sort of looking backward wistfully right now. Like, if this was the Confederacy, I might have an issue with it. But, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? but and if I thought they were truly trying to erase intentionally trying to erase black people's contributions from the game with this event. I might have an issue with it, but this was about a very specific moment in baseball and in history. And I can't blame baseball or Fox for wanting to celebrate it and make something cool out of it. And, and if, you know, as I think back on it, it's the same reason that the Hoosers aren't, isn't something that I'm in love with. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it. You know, maybe my favorite baseball movie is major league, but I liked Soul of the Game, which was a movie that was on HBO about the Negro Leagues. And so I'm just less interested in the Field of Dreams shoehorning in Negro League players than I am seeing more movies and stories about the Negro Leagues. Does that make sense? Yeah, that um, makes sense. It's like, it's, yeah, that makes yeah. total sense. And yeah, I was going to bring up Hoosiers, actually, um, and maybe that can be a transition into another conversation point, which is that a bunch of folks, Rainy Gisele among them, kind of looking at the success and popularity of this game, saying, okay, what Major League Baseball has 
is inventory. Each team has 81 home games a year. Why not put, you know, have the Seattle Mariners play an annual series in Alaska, the Midnight Sun Games, or have the Padres play in Hawaii? And that got me thinking, all that sounds cool, but baseball has already kind of been doing that. There were games in England. There have been games, um, mm-hmm. you know, out of, the, out of the country. And they didn't really pop in the same way that these did. And maybe the Alaska, like the Midnight Sun series, that is actually a cool idea. You need to think about games that would feel special and different and would create kind of good and and cool images. And so I was thinking about, would it actually, (laughs) for the exact same reason that you brought it up, Joel, is like, would it be cool to see the Pacers and whoever play in like the Milan High School gym for all of the like issues that one can have with the movie Hoosiers, like would it be cool or or you can generalize it even more. Like would it be cool to see an NBA game in, I don't know, Hinkle Fieldhouse or one of these old like storied West kind Fourth of Street. Yeah. Rucker the, Park. Yeah, one of these kind of like storied places. And I think I, I think it probably would be cool, depending on on what the uh, location is. And again, you d- I think you really just have to separate out. I feel like a lot of the reason why this was interesting and popular was because it looked cool to hit home runs into corn, like totally separate from anything to do with the movie. Yeah, I mean, as, and, and I think that's really important, Josh. And, and I think in Trash and Field of Dreams, like I just did about this very specific point, um, also it's a really sentimental movie and a little bit hokey and... You know. Sentiment is okay. It's okay to be sentimental. I know. Sometimes. Um, th- that is separate from how does Major League Baseball market itself and how does it mm-hmm. generate attention to try to reverse some of the perceived problems of the sport in attracting new audiences. And whether or not you watched Field of Dreams or are cognizant of Field of Dreams or read Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella or buy into any of that sort of mythology, it doesn't mean you wouldn't have turned on that game and thought, wow, this is really cool. Like, I don't know anything about Kevin Costner, but they're playing in the middle of Iowa and they're hitting balls into corn and look at the batter's eye in the outfield. It looks like a barn. That's awesome. Um, So I think you could replicate that. So the the question for baseball is like, can you do this while acknowledging your history and trying to find ways to sort of circumvent the bigger issues? So if, as a bunch of people have suggested, should Major League Baseball play a game at Rickwood Park in Birmingham, Alabama, where the Birmingham Black Barons played? That'd be kind of cool, right? I mean, would that honor baseball's history or would it draw attention to the fact that the Birmingham Black Barons had to play in the Negro Leagues and none of its players were allowed to play in the American or National Leagues? Yeah, uh, you know, that that might be pretty cool. And I, yeah, it's just hard to get past the idea of, you know, seeing professional athletes playing these big games in these like really distinctive parks. Like there's this beautiful football stadium in uh, Tacoma, Washington, that I would love to see like a big game at, right? Um, just thinking about like, you know, the, the backgrounds that would be beautiful. But, you know, isn't this just sort of, I mean, we're really excited about this game, but don't you think that what we just, what you talked about, Josh, that fundamentally Major League Baseball's problem is something that is really difficult to change is that the amount of inventory that it has. And it's like, you can make a few games a big deal that you can have a game, you know, at all these beautiful places that we've listed, but it's just hard to make an event out of 162 games in a season, right? And why would fans care about 
ratings or the appeal to other people. Like, that's the thing I sort of don't understand. Because if you're a baseball fan, life has never been better. You can see almost every mm-hmm. game played by every team on TV at some point. That's not something that we did. And, and actually, Joe Posnanski wrote about this. He, he In his piece, he said, this was a midweek regular season primetime baseball game on network television, and that never happens anymore. And I think there's something that because we, there's just so much TV now. Like, it's just, we're not going to be able to build every game up like that. And I just think that the urgency and novelty of baseball has changed a lot over the past 30 years. You know, 30 years ago, when I was sort of a fan, NBC used to broadcast the game of the week with Bob Costas. And I used to watch those every now and again. And it was really a big deal because there was not so much baseball on TV. And maybe I might get to watch American League teams that I would never get to see otherwise. But isn't that an answer right. to the inventory problem, Joel? That if you can mm-hmm. carve out one game a week in some exotic, interesting location, it's going to cost the sport money, but the sport has money. Um, the sport has money to do this, and the sport has money to pay minor leaguers living wages, and it's still not doing that. So th- as a priority, I'm guessing that Major League Baseball, Baseball is going to be more interested in playing in Hawaii or playing a game in the Dominican Republic or playing a game in Alaska and than, than they are in sort of doing right by minor league players. But this is a commercial enterprise, so they've got the inventory to try to figure out how to capitalize on this. Yeah, I mean, the thing that comes to mind is what Brian Curtis of The Ringer often says, which is that the ratings of whatever sporting event have no effect on your life. And yet, I think a lot of fans feel like I don't know. It's like if you're a baseball fan, maybe you're rooting for the ratings to be high because you want people to like and care about your your sport, even if ultimately it just seems bizarre that you're like playing like television executive or or sports executive. Um, because as Joel said, like you can watch any game that you want, you know, and it's never been a it's never been better or easier to be a fan. And yet there there is something about wanting to feel like the thing that you care about is at the center of a cultural conversation or a cultural moment, which baseball was this week, just sort of out of nowhere for no particular reason. And the idea that you could just generate this attention with just a good idea. I mean, I think it's kind of, I I can understand why you think that was cool if you're a, a baseball fan. And the fact that it was just like so random and just like put a game in the middle of Iowa, it does... I, I think lead one to think like, okay, what other ideas can can we have? But maybe it's that the like international games feel more kind of like transparently like attempts to grow the game mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily doing something cool for fans. Whereas maybe this felt like this is a thing that all baseball fans can enjoy. Uh, is yeah, that- I mean, in the in the same way that the baseball playing a game in Williamsport, Pennsylvania during the Little League World Series has been successful. You know, it looks cool. The images of the, 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 the kids with the big leaguers is cool. It feels really genuine. It does connect the players with their childhoods. Um, and it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And, you know, the ratings are just a byproduct. I mean, the focus on ratings is silly, but they do show that people tuned in to watch the game in Iowa. And that is going to be a sign that they might tune in to watch games in other exotic places. I mean, the thing that's been really successful is the outdoor games for the NHL, which leads one to wonder, you know, 
Joel, should they start playing baseball games in frozen football stadiums? Maybe, maybe you can. <laughs> yeah, nice. Maybe, maybe that would. What do, pe- be do people popular. watch the Yankee Bowl? Or do people, you know, the the college football game that they used to play in Yankee Stadium? Like, I mean, do people tune in to watch that? The just pinstripe bowl, it's a I college football game. The pinstripe bowl. Do people watch that because it's in a unique? I mean, I think there's a, there's a limit on how much the you know. Uh, unusual background or setting for a game can work. Like I, I think this was a big deal because we were building up to it and there was so much buildup, but I just don't know if you can replicate that. Well, I think it's a question of like doing it in moderation. There, there's been right. some criticism that the NHL has actually overplayed the success of the, the winter classic games by scheduling too many of them and diluting the specialness of it. So I'm sure there is an entire you know, group at Major League Baseball headquarters trying to figure out right now how to move this forward and find other venues where this can generate the same sort of enthusiasm and curiosity that the Field of Dreams game did. I I don't remember who to credit this to. I just saw someone on Twitter suggest that baseball should play a 163rd game where it's one like pitcher and one position player from each team playing MLB the show, just playing a video game. And somebody replied being like, are you high? And then uh, another reply is like, I am high. And I think this is a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) So no ideas are bad ones in a brainstorming session. Up next, we'll talk to Jessica Luther about the latest in the Deshaun Watson case. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson is still, at this hour, a Houston Texans quarterback. Watson is practicing with the team during training camp while a grand jury has reportedly been convened in Harris County, Texas, to hear evidence about the sexual misconduct allegations against him. Those allegations, made in 22 civil lawsuits and 10 criminal complaints, come from massage therapists who say that he exposed himself and force them to touch his genitals, among other inappropriate behaviors. There is no known timetable on that grand jury, and the NFL has thus far not placed Watson on the commissioner's exempt list, which would pull him off the field while an investigation is ongoing. So what is Watson's status, and what is the league doing? Joining us to discuss is Jessica Luther. She's one of the co-hosts of the Burn It All Down podcast and the author with Kavitha Davidson of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Hey, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me again. Great to have you. Um, And let's start with the question of what the NFL is doing and why. Um, The league is currently running its own personal conduct investigation into Watson, which is separate from any law enforcement action. Um, Jenny Vrentis had a piece about that in Sports Illustrated, in which two of the women who've accused Watson of misconduct expressed their concerns about how the league is proceeding. Um, What can you tell us about what's going on there? I feel like... Every time we do this, the NFL, someone has concerns about what the NFL is doing on these investigations. They've talked to 10 
of the 22 women, four women apparently gave sworn affidavits, but the NFL doesn't use those or sworn declarations. The NFL doesn't use those. So 10 of the 22 have actually spoken with them. And Ashley Solis and Lauren Baxley, two of the women who spoke with Jenny at Sports Illustrated, they said that the investigation was less than ideal. Uh, One called it victim blaming patronizing uh, and they both mentioned that they were asked what they were wearing during the interview and not in a in a way that made them feel particularly judged so without any kind of context for why they're asking the question they just felt judged by the question so it doesn't sound like it's going great from from their perspective at least and the nfl's rejoinder to that was that part of the investigation was that watson supposedly ask the women to wear specific things. And so they said that was the reason that we were asking them about what they wore. But as you said, the women um, did not believe that this, and and they had, um, they had positive things to say actually about the Houston police department and those conversations, right. As compared to the NFLs, which they felt like they were being interrogated, they weren't allowed to speak uninterrupted and, and so forth. Right. So there's a, a way that you interview survivors, a trauma informed way that apparently the Houston Police Department does better than the NFL where you do kind of let someone tell their story and then you circle back and ask them questions afterwards. Uh, whereas they describe the NFL um, interview as they were interrupted constantly questioned as they were talking that can just be really disorienting for someone and you're talking about people who already go into these interviews assuming that people are going to not believe them uh, for lots and lots of reasons and you know our culture doesn't believe people when they come forward and so that kind of interviewing can really put people off and make them feel judged in the process so yeah it's really something when the (laughs) Houston PD is doing a better job than you are with this kind of investigation. Well, I want to ask that just to follow up on that, Jessica, because obviously there's a lot of variance among law enforcement agencies and how they handle these sort of allegations. Right. But um, is it are non law enforcement agencies? are, Are there any that have proven to do these sorts of investigations better than law enforcement agencies. Because I, you know, I know that we have a lot of criticism about how law enforcement handles it and the criminal justice system is able to, you know, mediate these allegations and, and, and go after people. But I mean, is anybody qualified or does a good job that you can think of? No, I can't yeah. actually. I think a lot of what we hear about the systems that are in place often mimic the criminal justice system without sort of the same tools that it has. So one of the things the NFL cites is that they can't subpoena people. So they, if they get someone for an interview, they feel like they have to just go hard at them during that interview process, make, you know, ask all their questions whenever they can, because they don't know that they'll ever talk to this person again, uh, which is true. Um, but still that, I mean, if you want to talk to them again, then maybe you treat them in a way that would make them want to come back and talk to you. Uh, But yeah, when we look at like Title IX, departments on university campuses, anytime that I look at a system that investigates this stuff, it's always found wanting. And like you said, I mean, it really does, most of the time it really matters on the person, right? Even within law enforcement, it's like which detective gets the case will really uh, determine how uh, a survivor feels, you know, entering into that system and participating. Um, but as systems, as they are set up, I, I don't know of one that like survivors feel comfortable within. After all of this, Jessica, why do leagues and other uh, organizations like the NFL feel 
that they have the authority and ability to do this? And why don't they, like in this case particularly, utilize all of the tools at their disposal that might lead to a more equitable outcome and more equitable public perception. In this case, look, the NFL, after the Ray Rice case in 2014, created an independent investigations unit. They hired former prosecutors, women, to run it. Um, they rewrote their personal conduct policy. They have the ability to put Deshaun Watson on this exempt list until either its own internal investigation is done or until law enforcement's investigation is done. Is it hubris that leads these organizations to feel like they need to be in charge? That's a great question. I think it's mainly uh, PR would be my guess. Like after Ray Rice, they felt, you know, an intense public pressure to do something. And again, we don't have an imaginative idea of how to handle these things, right? So they just mimic law enforcement. They create their own investigation. They hire prosecutors to do it. I mean, they're women, sure, but they're also coming from the system that lots of survivors never enter into because of, of how they feel once they do. And so... I mean, certainly there's hubris, right? Like, I mean, this is about, you know, Roger Goodell and like that entire structure and the hierarchy there. Um, but I do think a lot of it is trying the most is to sort of control the PR around this to look good, which they don't ever do. <laughs> so I'm not really sure that it's paying off in the end. And it doesn't seem to be uh, great for the survivors who are willing to participate in it. And like you said, he's not on the exempt list. They could do that. And they've just chosen not to. And, and Jenny Ventress and her SI piece brought that up repeatedly that like, this is a choice that's been made. And that in and of itself is making the women feel bad about all of this. So the NFL has used that designation for Adrian Peterson and Reuben Foster, who were both charged with crimes. It's also used that designation for Josh Brown and Kareem Hunt, who were not charged with crimes. And I guess if I were the, the NFL, what I, what I might be saying in response to this conversation is like, all right, so you're saying we shouldn't investigate, but you're also saying we should place this guy on an exempt list when, you know, there is not saying that they're doing a great job with this, but this is a hard problem and a hard question for, you know, teams and leagues to figure out how to deal with a guy who has not been charged um, do we want these leagues to, you know, say we know better than the criminal justice system? And um, that's probably oversimplifying it. The the way that would um, perhaps make more sense to think about it is like there have been credible accusations made. Let's and this is I th I think what Major League Baseball has done with Trevor Bauer, right? What they're saying is we're putting this guy on paid leave. We're not making any kind of comment on whether he did what he's accused of or didn't do it. We're just saying, like, you're not going to play while this is all kind of playing out. And the NFL could very easily do the same thing with Deshaun Watson. Right. And both Ashley Solis and Lauren Baxley within the piece talk about how hard it is to see him everywhere and to see him discussed in a very specific way, which is the sports way that we talk about these people, right? Of course, um, about his potential on the field once the season starts, whether or not he'll have a trade, like this kind of innocuous uh, discussion as if 22 people have not come forward about Har you know, that he harmed them. Uh, and, that and Jenny Vrentis also quotes from an NFL Network reporter who tweeted, the price is high for a player of his caliber and should be. Right, right. And like, that's really hard. And so one thing I always 
think about and I've talked about before is like sports is there's something about celebrity in general, just like seeing these people all the time after they've harmed someone. But sports like literally creates a space where you get to cheer for these people. Right. Like the entire like once the game starts, like the entire point is to like yell in support of them. And so it's like thinking about Antonio Brown returning to the field and people were cheering that he had returned and thinking about like what that means to these people who've come forward. And these are just the people who've come forward. There's a lot of people, you know, we have to consider that there might be more people who've remained silent and just thinking about like what that would be like from their perspective. It makes, I agree. I think he should have put him on the exempt list. It's not really clear why they haven't made that decision since they do have that interim measure that they can use. And I don't know. I just, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> Joel, it doesn't even seem like the Texans want to play him. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they would want to play him if he wanted to play, right? I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that he doesn't want to play for them anymore. And so they're sort of locked in this, you know, game of wait and see, right? And I, I guess this is, I have maybe a counterintuitive thought or question, Jessica, because, you know, there's a lot of discussion about you know, the public focus on his career, which has minimized their accounts, right? Um, but I'm wondering if, and you, you walk with me here and tell me if I'm out of bounds, so to speak, that maybe it's best for this, because given what we know about NFL media and fans, um, they've consistently shown that we're, you know, even us, we're not necessarily qualified to discuss these investigations or accusations in a way that would help survivors regardless, right? If we, if we were out here having uh, conversations on SportsCenter about these, char- about these accusations, I don't think it would necessarily go any better or that the survivors would feel any better. So, like, what would a good public focus look like here? I think that's such a good point, and I think that's there's all of this is so complicated, right? I mean, Diana Moskovitz had a wonderful piece years ago now about how these policies don't really work that well because they really need to be individualized to each case because they're so complicated, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, oh, I don't trust sports media to talk about this either, right? Um, and so do I want them out there sort of pontificating on this? Probably not. The chances of doing harm <laughs> are are much higher uh, if that's what they're doing. At the same time, I think one thing that this industry needs to figure out is how to talk about this in some way. Like you can't, I don't think ignoring it is necessarily the answer. Um, but I don't know if I have one, especially for sort of the 24-7 TV media that's going, 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 talking heads all the time. But yeah, I don't know if I want them yelling about this like on first take or something. I don't I don't think that's necessarily going to do us it's any It's funny good. you said that because I was thinking about Stephen A. Smith trying to discuss, you know, the, the accusations. And I don't think anybody would be much happier yeah. if he was digging into that, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know what you do with the fact that like his job is that he's a quarterback and he's on a team and we're going to have discussions about teams and, you know, preseason has started and, but it does seem wrong to just ignore it. Like with that NFL network person just tweeting about how his trade is high. I mean, the reason he hasn't been traded is because these accusations came out and he became too toxic to trade for a while. So like, it does seem like relevant information to thinking about a trade, but at the same time, do I want that person talking about? I don't, I wish I had answers for you. I always come on here and you guys are like, how do we fix it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it certainly feels, Jessica, like getting him out of, you know, the the the, the gaze of, 
you know, the camera operators that are at training camp every day and getting that talking point just off the board seems like a, a saner approach. I yeah, mean, no, I agree. I mean, until the Washington Post published a long investigative piece the other day about Trevor Bauer and a second accuser with very similar accusations against him, you know, he had sort of just disappeared. His teammates weren't talking about him. It wasn't like the media was talking much about it. And the investigations, both both you know, legal and, and inside baseball, were continuing. Right, right. I agree. That would be the best thing, right? If he wasn't even playing and we weren't considering him, um, that would probably change the conversation, too. So you did a piece this past week, Jessica, for the LA Times about the NCAA investigation into Baylor, where, to put an extremely fine point on it, they found that rape is not an NCAA violation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that kind of fits into everything that we've been talking about here with organizations, you know, in this case, kind of deciding that the best thing for them to do as far as whether it's, I don't think they're getting great PR for it, but they're just basically saying, you know, we're not going to deal with this. Like, this is not for us to, to, you know, penalize or adjudicate in any way. Right. I'll just say up front that there is a difference between a professional league and a collegiate league, right? Or a collegiate organization. So we're not talking about, at, at, at least for now, we're not talking about employees when we're talking about the NCAA. And yeah, so what I've been saying for eight years in which finally the NCAA's Committee on Infractions said in their report on Baylor is that they don't have a rule. There's just like no rule that Baylor broke when it when its athletic department completely failed to do anything around gendered violence. And the committee admitted that this was true, like that they there were problems within the athletic department. Um, but they, they were like, we reluctantly agree. Right, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, they say repeatedly in the report, which is about 50 pages long, that the NCAA, if they needs to take this up, like they need to decide if this is something they care about. And if it's something they care about, they need to create rules around it. And I think this is, again, this kind of tension here. Like, I don't think the NCAA would do a good job necessarily if they had a rule around this. But the fact that they can't even create a rule that in and of itself is so they just can't even do the bare minimums they couldn't punish michigan state a a few years ago they can't punish baylor we think about the well-being of of athletes and the thing that i wrote about in the la times piece and that i think about constantly and the thing i thought about when i saw that they weren't going to punish baylor even though i knew that they probably couldn't was that there are the people who reported a lot of these football players were also athletes themselves, right? And so they can't even, they're not even protecting all of their athletes by abdicating this responsibility. So institutional failure uh, to, to do anything about these issues is the thing that connects the NFL and the NCAA in my mind. But then I don't, it's so hard because the NFL is not great at doing what it has set out to do with its policy. And so I don't think the NCAA would necessarily be great at it either. Um, but it is just continually disappointing that all they do is pay lip service to this issue. And now we've seen like how that actually plays out when you have a school that does any school deserve it <laughs> more than Baylor to, to have been punished in some way for that kind of failure. And they could do nothing. 
Think about how fucked up it is when like Art Briles feels vindicated at the end of the day. You know, Which let me say for statement. the record yeah. that they were not <laughs> kind to him in that report. Right. So he can say he was exonerated all day and the report really went hard after him for a couple of pages. So, but yeah, it allows him, right? Because most people won't know that part. Um, and, you know, in, in that piece, you did mention Brenda Tracy, you know, a survivor, public speaker, founder of Set the Expectation organization. Um, she, she mentioned that the NCAA could adopt the Big Skies, Big Sky Conference's serious misconduct rule, which is something I was not aware of. And you can explain to people what that is, but I'm just sort of curious as to why that's not something that's not more widely adopted, because it does seem to make the most sense. Yeah, so this is a policy that's a lot about the individual player. So it makes it so that schools have to find out, they have to actually do their due diligence about a player's history, they have to ask every year. And if a player uh, is found to have harmed someone in the past and been held accountable for it, then the school can't play them. They're not athletically in it eligible. There's an appeal process built in, a robust one, because all these cases are individual. Uh, but that has existed for years now. And there are other conferences that have it. There are individual schools that have it. Uh, and so we, the NCAA could have just adopted it. They actually had a committee look into this, uh, or commission, I guess, that Brenda was on. And their final recommendation was like, please take up the Big Sky policy. And they just said no. Uh, they just, they've adopted part of it kind of now uh starting in 2022 schools do have to find out about the history of these players but they don't have to do anything about it like there's nothing there's this like they always kind of adopt things and there's no teeth anywhere uh so i mean i don't know it seems it i guess it, like it seems simple on its face they could just do this thing uh but they don't care i mean i don't know how else to think about it Jessica Luther is one of the co-hosts of the Burn It All Down podcast, and she's the co-author of Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah, thanks for having me. Up next, hang up at the movies, the malice at the palace. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to continue our conversation about the Netflix documentary Malice at the Palace, which gave us a lot to discuss and to debate. To hear the rest of that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. That membership will get you bonus segments, but you can also listen to all Slate podcasts without ads, and you get unlimited reading on the Slate website. It's only a dollar for the first month, so please give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. Now our test has jumped over the scorer's table and is trying to get down to the bench. Our test is in the stands. Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans. Rasheed Wallace going into the stands. The security trying to somehow restore order. Fans and players are going out and the players trying to help each other out. This is a disgrace. 
That chaotic sequence you just heard is the subject of Netflix's latest documentary, Untold, Malice at the Palace. It goes in depth on the players versus fans brawl that erupted in the final minutes of a game between the Indiana Pacers and Detroit Pistons in 2004. What happened that night went well beyond 146 games lost in suspensions and nearly $10 million in forfeited paychecks. It instantly turned the Indiana Pacers from a finals contender to an also-ran, ruined the reputations of several players, and launched a national conversation about the NBA and whether its players were so-called thugs. So, Josh, hear it, hang up at the movies. Um, What did you take from this documentary about one of the most infamous nights in NBA history? I thought it was extremely engaging, uh, really good footage, really good interviews, and it's a great topic. Um, Also, just really valuable to see the kind of waterfall of video and audio of people that are extremely mainstream media commentators. I think Bob Costas, most notably, calling the players thugs. Like, it's important, I think, to have that documented and for us to hear that. You know, Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest then, Meta World Peace Now, um, Stephen Jackson, Reggie Miller, all great, <laughs> all really great interviews and and really candid, I thought. All that being said, I have a lot of criticism of this documentary, which I hadn't seen many people make, which is that I felt like it left a lot out. And it's only an hour long. And I, I saw people praising it and saying like, oh, this could have been like eight or 10 hours. And like, it was really tight. But, you know, just one example, um, and I can certainly bring up others later in the conversation. But did you guys know that according to Steven Jackson in 2016, John Green, the fan who threw the cup and met a world peace were friends and spoke every day. I did not know that. Did not know that. Don't you think that would be a, a thing that would be interesting to include in a documentary about how this fan threw a cup at Ron Artest and instigated this enormous brawl? Wow. Do you think they're in a group text or something? Or would- the guy that actually started the whole thing, that threw the beer, him and Ron speak daily, said Stephen Jackson on ESPN's The Jump in 2016. They keep in touch and they're real good friends. I don't know how they're still friends. It's amazing. But Ron's that type of guy, though. You never know what to expect from Ron. And I can go, th- I can go through a bunch of other stuff that it felt weird to me that they didn't include, but I'm curious for what you guys thought about the doc. I think I came at this with a sort of short-term memory loss or maybe long-term memory loss about the incident. It really was jarring to me to watch this again. Um, I mean, I wrote about it when I was at the Wall Street Journal in 2004, but I felt like I learned a lot. I'm, and I'm sure there are things that were left out. It is not a long doc. I'm sure there are factual things that you just pointed out, like our test, who, by the way, I think now goes by Meta Sandiford, our test, not Meta World Peace, um, that our test, it just opened a window on Mar- on Ron Artest's mental health struggles, that he was suffering from depression and anxiety at the time and was being treated. Um, and that when he lay down on the table before he was hit by that cup, he was using a therapy technique to calm himself. Take five, his therapist told him to do. And also the context of the season, not that it matters so much, but the focus of the documentary, Joel, ends up being how the Pacers should have won the NBA championship that year, that they were sort of rebuilt um, to win it that year in particular. 
Um, they traded for Jermaine O'Neal. They added Steven Jackson. They were 7-2 and two when they went to Detroit. They were looking to avenge an Eastern Conference uh, final loss to the to the Pistons the previous year in game six. The final score of that game, I think, was 65 to 61 or 69 to 65. 69 to 65. Um, And and I think that, you know, it it aired all, it it sort of raised a lot of these issues that I had forgotten about, like where the NBA was in the early 2000s and how David Stern, the commissioner, functioned to sort of protect the image of the league um, at a time that I think he probably failed more miserably than at any other point in his career. So I want to hear more about your criticisms, Josh, and the things that you felt were left out. But as 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 a short documentary, I thought it was engaging, and I thought I learned a lot, and I thought it was revealing, particularly in its main point, that we don't appreciate and certainly didn't appreciate at the time the players' perspective on this and how they ended up being blamed in an, in 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 its, in an entirety for something that was not entirely their fault. Right. One quick tangent at the top: the Pacers won one big early season game over the Pistons and use it as evidence that they were better than the Pistons, which seems a little dubious. I mean, I just, I mean, they spent a lot of time talking about how they won this one regular season game on a Friday night in November. Uh, I just. Maybe settle down. Let's see how the rest of the season plays mm-hmm. out before you declare yourself better than the Pistons. But more broadly, I'm sympathetic to people who make documentaries, especially right now, um, because you have to make storytelling decisions and it's hard to be comprehensive given the time limits here. So one thing struck me early on was Jermaine O'Neal explaining that he was from Columbia, South Carolina, where he says they flew the Confederate flag as recently as three or four mm-hmm. years ago. and Technically, it was six. But... O'Neill says that as, it's a, as if it's a given that people understand that that's a bad thing, that it's a symbol for a certain kind of institutional and systemic racism. And I think that's probably part of my larger critique of the documentary, that it assumes that people know the underlying racism that fueled the immediate response, including, and especially David Stearns, like they didn't explicate like, when people say thug, or when they talk about this hip hop culture in the league, that those are dog whistles. And it would have been nice, I think, if the documentary had just paused a beat and covered that or had somebody to say that and make that connection apparent and immediate as opposed to leaving it up to the viewers who are supposed to understand that, oh, this is why this is wrong that they're saying this. They didn't, you know, immediately dig into that. Yeah, I think it was Howard Bryant that pointed out on Twitter that it omitted the backstory of race and the NBA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I Mm -hmm. think there was mention in the doc about Allen Iverson and Corn Rose Mm -hmm. and the perception of players at the time. But the NBA's history with black players Mm -hmm. goes much farther back than the early 2000s, obviously. Um, It starts really in the 70s when the league developed this perception as being drug addicted and the black players were, were criminals and cocaine abusers. And David Stern's success was in making the league palatable to white people and to sponsors in the 80s and 90s. So Jermaine O'Neal was an executive producer on the project, and that kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. Every mention there was of, like, Jermaine was the one who really had his career more short-circuited than anyone. And, like, you know, uh, and even if that's true, it made me look 
with a little bit more skepticism around the whole project, given that it was kind of sanctioned by one of the people who was at the center of it. I think you should always like look a little bit skeptically around an authorized portrait. Just as we did with the Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah. And like, I just, just to be clear, like, I think this was way better than the, the last dance. And I think the reason that I have critique of it is because I thought it was so good, which made me kind of wonder just some of the choices just seem sort of inexplicable to me. So back to John Green, who the the doc does, I think, effectively paint as like the villain of the piece, the guy who had a criminal background, who threw the cup, who was, um, if we want to use pejoratives around, uh, you know, people and their behavior, he would be one to use them around. He actually, his criminal record and background is actually worse than what the documentary gets into. He was convicted of a brutal assault of a woman well before any of this happened and was in in prison for it. And if you go to the, we can put a link on the, on our, on our show page that has his whole kind of criminal history. But I was kind of, especially given the point of view of the project, I found it strange that they didn't go into more detail about what his background was. Um, But a thing that I, I actually mentioned, I can't even remember at this point um, what the context was, but I brought this up on this show a while back. The response, immediate response on ESPN after this happened, and the game was on television, was that the show at that point was called NBA Shootaround. And John Saunders, Tim Legler, Stephen A. Smith, Greg Anthony all blamed the fans immediately. The immediate reaction was that this was the fans' fault. And Mark Shapiro, who was, I guess he was the vice president of ESPN at the time, was his title. He pushed back and told them that their commentary was biased. And Shapiro said uh, later, I wish the studio hadn't laid the blame solely on the backs of the fans Friday night. And so I don't think it's wrong of the documentary to focus on the people who called the players thugs. That was extremely prominent strain of the commentary. And I think you could include the fact that NBA shoot around this, you know, show that, you know, three out of the four commentators that I mentioned are, are black, that they kind of pushed back on that. And that the white executive then was like, yeah, you're biased and saying that it's the fans fault. You could like pretty easily include that in the storyline of this documentary without having to be like on the one hand, on the other hand. So I thought that that was hmm. an omission as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that Mark Shapiro's, uh, I guess, interference, for lack of a better term, or his um, uh, his decision to reshift the focus reflects a broader belief that we have that fans are customers and that they're almost always right, that it's really difficult to disabuse fans of the notion that they can't abuse the players or say whatever they want or throw things at them. Like that is a huge part of sports culture in general, but particularly sports fan culture. And, you know, even every, every weekend, especially since fans have been allowed back into arenas and stadiums, we see these viral videos of fans fighting in the stands and bleachers. And I think that's because in our desperation to sell people on the value of the in-game experience, leagues and teams encourage fans to believe 
these games are their playground and they're entitled to entertain, entertainment regardless of the consequences. And we really didn't, it would have been nice to have seen some of that back and forth or hear some of the conversations, as you mentioned, Josh, about how the initial reaction was, man, these fans are out of control. This, this is fucking insane to, well, you know, you can't run into the stands. You can't respond when fans abuse you and treat you poorly. Um, Cause I think that there's something valuable in that. But again, I mean, if you only got an hour, I know that, you know, you've got to make some storytelling decisions. But yeah, I, you know, maybe I would quibble with that. Um, but I do think that like, if, if, if I were the one that was in charge of that, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that. But I guess I would be free to do my own documentary on this, right? <laughs> yeah, if you don't like it, make your own documentary. <laughs> yeah. what, what I really liked was the way that the players who were involved reframed the conversation about fans. Mm -hmm. um, let's play this clip of Jermaine O'Neal talking about how crowds get riled up. And this is from the doc. The fans don't know the majority of us are actually friends. So they think that this is a real street brawl scenario. So however you react, they're gonna react. If you do this, what do you think they're gonna do? Right, if you do this, what do you think they're gonna do? The crowd feeds off the players. Yeah, it's that misperception, Joel, that the players are engaged in some sort of, you know, life and death battle on the court when mm -hmm. the reality is that the players go into the locker room when they lose and they're like, yeah, we lost, let's go out. You know, they play 82 yeah. games in basketball or 162 in baseball. They move on. Fans, as we've talked about before, don't have that perspective. Well, Stefan, it's it's interesting you mentioned that too because don't you think a missing piece of this is that Ben Wallace never had to answer for sort of agitating all and of this and getting things riled up? And yeah, they did. He was in there. Yeah, I mean, why didn't I just maybe they talked about it and they just cut it out in the editing process? But what do you guys think of Jamal Tinsley just kind of like being like <laughs> rant? Just there's just this like kind of aside. It's like, oh yeah, Jamal Tinsley told uh, Ron to just like go and foul him, and it's like yeah. Jamal Tinsley is not inter not interviewed, and there's no other discussion of it. But like Jamal Tinsley secretly the villain, <laughs> secretly the villain of all yeah. this. <laughs> Yeah, why didn't they get Jamal Tinsley to be like, "Hey, I didn't say that shit," or "I didn't know that," you know, it was going to blow up from there. But that was, but again, maybe they did interview him and they just didn't air it. But it would have been nice um, to have heard Jamal Tinsley confirm that he's to blame for everything that happened after that. <laughs> so I, I also had the same reaction of, of that Joel did around like all this talk that the Pacers were certainly going to win the title if this this hadn't happened. Which brings me to perhaps my final complaint about an omission. This is, it's like a really blink if you miss it sort of thing. It, wouldn't it uh, seem worth getting into that the Pacers and Pistons played in the playoffs that postseason? And the Pacers were up in the series two games to one. Like the way that it's treated in the doc is like, this happens, you know, Ron Artest gets suspended for the whole season. There are these, these other suspensions that happen. And like that instantly sinks the entire Pacers dynasty. They're going to win eight championships or, or whatever <laughs> it is we're, we're led to believe. Right. Or they're going to win one for Reggie Miller. But like, that's a competitive playoff series. And the one that they lost the previous season, which they make a big deal about and they weren't mentally tough of, they lost that one in six games too. I mean, it's like, what's the, what's the difference? And so it just felt to me like if it had been like poorly put together 
or like I, I thought the point of view of it was off or just like the last dance where it's just like, this is just clearly propaganda, whatever, whatever, that I wouldn't think of it. But because I thought that this was good and the interviews were so good and it was put together in this like really artful way, it's like kind of beautiful, like to watch the video and the, it's like all really artfully done. I just felt, kind of felt disappointing that in a lot of ways that would have made it like kind of more interesting or more complicated or a little more gray, they just chose to like leave that stuff out. You know, oh, to that point, I mean, they could have mentioned that the reason that Tim Donaghy was in this documentary with no other commentary on who he was <laughs> or why he was there. <laughs> that that was he was weird. the third ref. He was the third ref in that game. I didn't know that. I had they to look that up. They show a shot of him during the game, but you have to put the two things together. Yeah, and he didn't gotta, say anything interesting at yeah, all. It was really, right. it, that was a very bizarre editorial decision. Okay, one fine. One more. One more complaint. They didn't say anything about whether the players, uh, Ron, Jermaine, Stephen Jackson, <gasps> whether they're friends, friends or w- whether they yes. communicate or anything. That was weird. Though you yes. certainly got the point that Jermaine does not communicate with our test. They didn't say that explicitly enough. And didn't your heart kind of break a little bit seeing Meta Sanderford our test after? the Lakers championship series saying that he was a coward. Like he just brought it down. It was really somber all of a sudden. I was really moved by that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would have liked to have known if they reconciled all these years later, although it seems to be pretty clear that Jermaine O'Neal doesn't fuck with uh, Meta anymore. But maybe we should find a movie that we like for our next segment of Hang Up at the Movies. Because we haven't, have we, have we liked one yeah, yet? I liked it. Okay. I liked it. I say this in, I say this in sorrow, not, not in anger. And, and I would still recommend it. I think there's a lot in there, like... I, I co-sign what you said, Stefan, that it's like really valuable kind of document of that that time. And I don't think there's anything in there that isn't true. Like, I, I think that um, if you watch it, then you'll learn stuff and it's worth watching. And I do wonder whether this wasn't the fault of the filmmakers that they, you know, signed a deal with Netflix mm-hmm. and Netflix said you got an hour. And this might have actually been a case where an hour and a half would have yeah, been absolutely. would have been more. Yeah, it could have been longer. Totally could have been longer. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs and Back to Field of Dreams based on a book by W.P. Kinsella. Uh, what can you tell us about W.P. Kinsella, Mr. Fatsis? Well, the most important thing to know about Bill Kinsella is that he was a competitive Scrabble player. He played in 122 tournaments from 1998 to 2015. Uh, he died shortly thereafter. Um, Lifetime record, 877, 705, and 11. Pretty good. He's in the positive. Right. Did not have a high rating. His peak rating was only 1182. My current rating is like 1650 or something. So Bill was a intermediate player. Um, after the uh, last week during the Field of Dreams stuff, I tweeted that, you know, two hours of pregame and they couldn't even mention that Kinsella played competitive Scrabble. An expert player named Chris Patrick Morgan, who's a friend of mine, 
replied that he enjoyed playing against him. He was a gracious opponent. I met Kinsella a couple of times at the National Scrabble Championships and just introduced myself and told him that I liked Shoeless Joe, and he was a good guy. Not as good at uh, Scrabble as Stefan, though. No, Let's definitely not as good at Scrabble as, oh. as, as I am. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Thanks for the book. <laughs> Stefan, what is your WP Kinsella? There's a moment in the Malice at the Palace documentary when Jermaine O'Neal talks about the public reaction to the evening, and he says this. Right, all of a sudden, my character is in question. It wasn't just the amount of people that were saying it. It was the stature of the people who were saying it. But it's tough to argue that certain thug mentality hasn't crept into basketball. The thug image is there until somebody excises it from the league. These are thugs. Literally, that's the word that he used. And everybody else signing off, yeah, you know, it's rap music and this. Well, they're not saying that when hockey is beating the hell out of each other for decades. Not just beating the hell out of each other, but also beating the hell out of fans. There are plenty of examples of players going into the stands to fight abusive fans. In 1912, Ty Cobb pummeled a heckler who literally had no hands, to which Cobb replied, I don't care if he has no feet. But there's only one comparable to what happened in Detroit in 2004. On December 23rd, 1979, the Boston Bruins beat the New York Rangers 4-3 at Madison Square Garden. As the Rangers were skating off the ice, Al Secord of the Bruins tripped Ulf Nielsen, one of New York's newfangled Swedish players, with his stick. The Rangers goalie, John Davidson, raced down the ice to confront the Bruins, who allegedly had been cheap-shotting Nielsen and Anders Hedberg, another Swede on New York, during the game. The teams are clutching and grabbing right next to the door leading to the Bruins' locker room. You can see this on the video. Fans are chanting, Boston sucks, which only recently had become a popular call. Then two players, Secord and Frank Beaton of New York, start fighting. Here's the play-by-play. Well, we got a little thing going on here between Beaton and Secord. As uh, the fans are now getting involved, as O'Reilly is out into the stands, and this is going to be something, O'Reilly's into the stands fighting with a Ranger fan, and all the Bruins are going over. Gilbert is in there, Peter McNabb. They're all into the stands. McNabb's going up to grab somebody about seven or eight rows up. Well, this is too bad that after the game is over, it gets out of hand like this, and uh, you got to worry about a spectator. Well, the Bruins are at a decided disadvantage, Fred, with those skates, and uh, somebody could get seriously hurt. I'm not sure the Bruins were at a disadvantage wearing skates because, you know, they're professional hockey players. Stan Jonathan of Boston was standing near the boards during the all-night scrum. A fan leaned over and hit him in the face with what apparently was a rolled-up program drawing blood next to his nose. When Jonathan then raised his stick, he said as a reflex, the guy grabbed it and started swinging. You can't see that on the video. The rest, though, you can. Terry O'Reilly is the first Bruin over the boards. He starts beating on the fan, holding the stick. 17 Bruins follow him into the stands. The whole team, except for goalie Jerry Cheevers, who was in the locker room having a beer. When another fan starts punching O'Reilly, Peter McNabb chases that guy up an aisle, flings him down on his back, and starts punching him. Then, in one of the most infamous moments in NHL history, 
Mike Milbury of the Bruins grabs the guy's left leg, wrenches off his shoe, and starts beating him with it. Except for the particulars, ice skates, a stick, a left shoe, the scene is eerily similar to what would happen 25 years later in Detroit. Fans throwing stuff at players, inadequate police presence, boundaries demolished, a few minutes of disorienting chaos and panic, a league investigation. But that's where the similarities end. This was pre-internet, pre-ESPN, pre-cable news, pre-big money in sports. The story lasted just a couple of news cycles, and that was it. I found some tut-tutting about how this was a black eye for hockey, and how the NHL was too violent, and how the European style was preferable. The Rangers would play and get smoked by the Soviet Red Army team a few days later at the Garden. But the players weren't vilified. There was no national outrage. The NHL's initial statement said that players had gone into the stands before and were usually fined or suspended. And they were. After a month-long investigation, Terry O'Reilly was suspended for eight games, Peter McNabb and Mike Milbury for six apiece. The NHL's president, John Ziegler, said the incident was shameful and had brought disrepute and dishonor to the league. But it wasn't even the longest suspension that month. A Los Angeles Kings player was suspended for 10 games for a stick-swinging incident. And sympathy seemed to be with the players. One hockey columnist said the suspensions were too long. The Rangers weren't punished for their lack, lack security. Fans started it. We are very proud of our players and the way they conducted themselves under very difficult circumstances, Boston's president said in a statement. In 2009, the Times wrote a 30th anniversary piece about the Garden Brawl, which noted that the altercation did nothing to damage the career prospects of the players involved. In fact, they've dined off it ever since. When he joined Twitter last year, Mike Milbury, then in his 14th season as an NHL commentator for NBC, wrote, ready to defend myself in the Twitter sphere, and he posted a photo of himself holding a shoe over his head. Damn. You know, taking your shoe off and beating somebody's ass with it is something that you would say as a teenager to somebody or a 20-year-old and actually get to do it in real life is actually kind of amazing. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm a fan of this guy. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to take your shoe off and beat your ass with it. Like, that's, that's a great line. I, I mean, I, I, you know, props to that man. I mean, maybe these suspensions were too long, you know? I mean, maybe the NHL's <laughs> handling of this was... Uh, you know, more sensible than uh, the NBA's. You know, the, the commissioner or the president of the NHL wasn't worried about how sponsors were going to react. Yeah. Um, hockey said, we're hockey. People go in the stands sometimes. You know, some fans were arrested for disorderly conduct. It was two brothers and a dad were the principals in, the, uh, in, the, in instigating the players. Family bonding. Yeah. And look, man, yeah. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that some fans need to ask beat. You know what I mean? And if it happens, I'm not all that broken up about it, to be honest. So... I'm not going to be precious about it. We are going to continue our conversation about, about this and about the mouth of the Palestine in our bonus segment. But for now, that is our show. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Hangup and Listen podcast and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zombo Baby, and thanks for listening.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.